Hello and welcome to Men, Mother, Matriarch. My guest today is Victoria Smith, author of a new book, Hags, The Demonization of Middle-Aged Women. We spoke about uh, Botox, intergenerational conflict, and why Mumsnet is such a dangerous political force. As always, you can also find this episode on my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find extended episodes, bonus episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Victoria, I wanted to start by talking about um, Helen Lovejoy, the Simpsons character that you write about in your book, from whom the won't someone think of the children meme originates. What do you think Helen Lovejoy, as a sort of uh, pop culture icon, I would say, uh, tells us about how middle-aged women tend to be regarded? I think um, she's become this very useful illustration of the way in which um, a lot of conversations about child protection, child safeguarding, um, the sex trade, pornography can easily be shut down by this image that you're prudish, that you're this frigid older woman type and that you're somehow in line with certain... um, religious or right-wing organisations that make you not credible in terms of your criticism. And I think it's very convincing because obviously there is a history and there is, even now, there are ways in which some people will use child safeguarding and in that way to try and kind of shut down conversations and judge other people and marginalise other groups. But it's just used so commonly now, just as a kind of, um, you don't want to be a Helen Lovejoy type. You don't want to be that kind of um, pearl-clutching, judgmental, shrewish older woman. And it really struck me now, particularly because part of the book I'm writing about, um, you know, what it's like to be a Generation X middle-aged woman and have come through that kind of post-second wave feminism period, where for a lot of us in the 90s and early noughties, you know, sex positivity and this idea of kind of the thing that Ariel Levy criticizes in um, Female Chauvinist Pigs, this kind of raunch feminism involved kind of looking at second wavers and seeing them actually as these Helen Lovejoy types, you know, even before Helen Lovejoy existed. This, And then you suddenly, years later, suddenly I find, gosh, it's actually made it really hard to articulate genuine criticisms because you just get put in this box and it's been going on for such a long time. And there's always been these kind of Helen Lovejoy types. You know, as um, one of the people I mentioned is Sheila Jeffries writing about the spinster and her enemies. There's this long-standing prude figure that is actually really useful to people who want women and children not to have boundaries. Mm. I love the title of that Sheila Jeffries book, The Spinster and Her Enemies. I think it's such a such a great title. Um, yeah, I mean, I love The Simpsons. I think The Simpsons is a, is, is a masterpiece. It also is basically expressing the views of a bunch of um young nerdy liberal men um and uh you know for good and ill and their the way they regard sort of prudish middle-aged women is very striking there's an episode i don't think this is the episode from which the won't someone think of the children image comes from um but i find it to be a very interesting episode when someone sets up a um a burlesque club in Springfield and Marge and Helen Lovejoy and all the other kind of church ladies sort of gang together to shut it down because Bart who is 10 has started working there <laughs> right and the and the 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 middle-aged ladies are, are the villains of the piece right they're being ridiculous and in the end there's a sort of big musical number which persuades them of the errors of their ways etc etc you know it is the constant refrain in the simpsons of these ridiculous hysterical women the thing i always think about the won't someone think of the children meme which gets pulled out on twitter and elsewhere whenever anyone yes raises some issue about child safeguarding is like Yes, won't someone think of the children? I honestly think that children are not thought about anywhere near enough <laughs> in all sorts of political issues. Yeah, 
yeah, so like unironically, yes, is my reaction to that to that meme. Yeah, Helen Helen Lovejoy is the hero in my view. Yeah, and I think it it's incredibly kind of uncool to be associated with that thinking about the children. And there is a way in which I think, um, on the one hand, there is an expectation that older women will think about the children and provide some kind of barrier to anything going to excess, but they won't be appreciated for it. They'll be judged for it. But I still think there's a reliance mm. on it that um, they'll, they'll hold things back and keep it in check. There's something you wrote um, that I've quoted in the book about the sort of the Mary Whitehouse unsexy figure that's kind of nobody likes her, but I think they, they still kind of depend on her to kind of, you know, it's that it's like housework. It's the job no one else wants to do. No one else wants to be the uncool person saying, actually, those are children. Actually, you've got to draw a line there. But we we do all know there is a need somewhere to do it. Yeah, and I think it's a fundamental um, dynamic, a sort of like triangular relationship between I mean this okay so I think that this is true also when it comes to maternal and paternal roles in general and I see this play out with my own husband and our toddler where to some extent because men are a little bit more risk tolerant and a little bit more adventurous with children you know they they will be the ones swinging them really high in the swing and then mum is always there to be a bit more risk averse and I think that there is actually a kind of yin and yang to it and probably actually you need both the risk tolerance and the risk aversion in the parental relationship in order to for the child to develop in sort of the ideal way and I think that that's also potentially true on a cultural level that you you need actually the mum figure you know the, the 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 women who are a little bit anxious a little bit risk averse who are there to say no stop to 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 the radicals right I think that we need those women but as you as you write so well in the book there's also this sort of deep resentment often of the mummy figure who's there to say who's there to say no and to set limits Mary Whitehouse being an amazing example of that you know she really was a woman who who stood athwart history yelling stop um eventually failed in that effort um but she had this she had this amazing power to um um to encourage this kind of grassroots activism from other middle-aged women with exactly the same sort of complaints and and yes the 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 the, the men in positions of authority who were desperate to try and liberalize everything for instance at the bbc they hated her they hated all of them it was it was you know it was a it was a a movement that was deeply, deeply resisted. And now, of course, Mary Whitehouse is just a punchline, pretty much. Yeah. And I, I mean, I I, can't, I don't know a huge amount about Mary Whitehouse as an individual. My understanding is that she was, you know, in terms of how I would view, view things, very wrong about some things, but very right about others. And, um, but yeah, it's it's kind of nobody who was kind of supporting Spotting the kind of things that enable Jimmy Savile, there's been no real ac accountability about that. And I find it's, you know, I remember I started blogging and using Twitter and that kind of thing about 10 years ago. And this was around the time there was quite a big reckoning around Savile. And I remember, you know, that that phrase, it's, it was just the women was really kind of, people were shocked by it because, it, you know, nobody listened. Everyone kind of knew, but nobody listened because it was just, just the women. But, um, that that lasted about five seconds, it seems. It seems the pushback against that has been really dramatic. And there is this kind of idea that um, child's, child abuse was kind of belonged to another age. There was a lot of conversations around the time with that, um, oh, you know, the 80s were, they were another time. It was completely different then. You know, and, it, and it serves this kind of dual purpose to... Um, present the politics of older people as kind of really regressive and conservative and they wouldn't be able to identify abuse anyways because they um they were just had all these really strange ideas about what was normal and what wasn't but it enables people to really ignore what's going on around them now and to ignore older women who speak out about it now because they are somehow associated with a past that was much more unenlightened anyways so how could they possibly know the difference between 
what is acceptable and what isn't. Um, but I, I find the way in which talking about child safeguarding has been completely demonised in certain parts of the left now, really disturbing. Mm. What was the line that you quote from Savile in your book? Uh, I've forgotten exactly what it was, but something about... Oh, yeah, he he sa- he doesn't like... He prefers girls to women because like women know too yeah. much. I think it was something like... Yeah. I mean, he was just so obvious about yeah. it, but it was... Yes. But there's always been that. Um, you don't want to be associated with um, the women who are drawing the lines. If you're, if you can be associated with the highest status people who are saying that, um, you know, we, as this idea that if we got ended stigma, that would sort everything out and stigma's the problem. And actually these women are complicit in reinforcing stigma. So if they were quiet, things would kind of even out. But that's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this issue of status is 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 one that I um I kept thinking about when I was reading your book that um so much of what you you describe about middle-aged women being despised about this process that women go through when they age and then they suddenly discover that they are the the term that's often used is be, is feeling invisible all of a sudden feeling invisible when you enter say your forties or fifties clearly completely true you know this is um universally described um by women going through this process. And it's one of these odd um, odd manifestations of class politics where you will actually inhabit both classes at, at, at every at, across your life cycle as long as you live long enough, um, which isn't true for most things. And basically what you're describing, what everyone who goes through this process is describing, is a loss of status. And it's slightly complicated because there are clearly downsides um, Feminists have pointed out the many downsides of being a young, beautiful woman. There's a lot of good that comes from being a young, beautiful woman, and you do have a certain kind of power. You also have an extreme vulnerability, um, but it does comes it, it comes with status. It does, and then when you lose that and you enter the phase of life where um, men in general, including men like Jimmy Savile, no longer consider you to have any real um, sexual value, it's an enormous it's an enormous shock. And basically, yes, it is that, that, that sudden loss of status, um, which I think maybe is more pronounced now than in previous eras. I wonder if you think that there has been a, where if the, if the historical status of, of middle-aged women is, is even lower now than it has been at other points in the past. I think I must have a feeling now that, um, people some people believe it's a choice that women have made more than they did in the past that somehow um beliefs about um gender fluidity beliefs about body modification beliefs about you know your identity and how you look being a reflection of your inner self feed into this idea that um someone who looks like helen lovejoy kind of chose to be that person and that it's a reflection of who she is and you know it's it was it's not this inevitable process I mean I think um just as people have started talking in ways I find quite disturbing about um puberty should be a choice I think this is idea that becoming an older middle-aged woman is a choice or almost that that you you it's some moral misstep that you've made because um who would want to identify with that? I mean, there's a quote in the book from um, Jane Schilling's um, The Stranger in the Mirror that I found really striking, where she's remembering being a teenage girl and looking at her own mother and thinking, God, if, you know, if I looked like that, I couldn't get up in the morning. I couldn't breathe. You know, I'd hate it. And then, like, obviously you get there and it's not like that at all. But there's this kind of judgment on what you supposedly allowed to happen to you. And, and I think in an age of um you know botox and all sorts I was of treatments say botox, as well is that the thing <laughs> it, yeah it becomes yeah it becomes within older women as a group there's also a kind of class splitting off that like the more money you have the more you can sort of visibly resist this and i think there's a huge pressure to do that as well and particularly within certain social groups if you want to still be considered someone who has value you're not necessarily to be considered sexually attractive i mean 
who would want to be considered sexually attracted to people like Jimmy Savile? You know, the, lots of us, you know, it can be a relief not to have that kind of attention on you. But when it's associated with not having your views taken seriously, being dismissed politically, having any views that you might have on issues such as sexual entitlement and sexual abuse being put down to you being this um, shrewish, jealous, sexless, strange creature. I think the desire to kind of pass, if not as someone younger, but at least as someone who has made the effort not to like give in to that process. You know, there is status in it, in trying to avoid it. Mm. And it, yeah, and it's a thing, yeah, like Naomi Wolf said in The Beauty Myth, that um, once it becomes possible to do something, it kind of becomes an obligation in terms of things like anti-aging and those kind of treatments that you can have. Yeah. I think in the 80s, it was dyeing your hair, had the same kind of debate surrounding it that Botox has now, whereas dyeing your hair, like no one would think much about it now. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been dyeing my hair since I was like 20 because I'm so prematurely grey. Um, oh, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's completely normal now. Yes, I don't think, um, I can't think of any time recently I've heard anyone debate hair dye as an anti-aging intervention, whereas Botox is still sort of controversial. Yeah. Um, I mean, my theory about these kind of cosmetic interventions is that as soon as they become, is that it's actually driven by the tech. You know, as soon as this new tech comes on the market and something becomes available, initially it will be expensive and it will be used by celebrities and then it will kind of filter down the economic food chain and then it will become practically compulsory. So hair dye is practically compulsory. Botox and fillers aren't yet, but they are still very, very widely used. And um, and then it completely changes what normal looks like. Yeah. And then the idea of looking like what an actual 40-year-old woman looks like. Um becomes unthinkable <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean I think about it in terms of at work or around other women my age some of whom have made the choice to have Botox like does it look like the fact that I haven't is some kind of political decision on my part in the same way that it's almost like puberty is being politicized mm. are these processes being treated as um just allowing nature to take its course is it being seen as some kind of political dis decision and also some kind of statement about your relationship to womanhood and to being female? And actually you're seen as, as quite a conservative or regressive type if you, if you just accept your body for what it is. Like not shaving your legs and not wearing a bra in another era. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't particularly shave my legs, but sorry, that's probably unnecessary. See, I'm, no filter. <laughs> Save that for the paywalls bit. We'll, yeah. we'll go into detail. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and Masculine Feminine Polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K E E P E R.ai. Yes, um, there's a book recently actually by a Times fashion writer about um, 
the fact that she has decided not to have Botox, that it's a, it's, it is in her world, in the fashion world, that is a statement because it's so rare for women not to do that, which probably isn't true in um, most other parts of society. But then the problem is if you've had really good Botox done, you wouldn't know. You can't tell. The frozen look is when you've had bad Botox done, right? So the, the issue is actually not so much when people are having obvious work done. The issue is when people are having completely imperceptible work done because that, that's what really, really affects norms. Yeah, and then do people think, oh, it's it must just be because you probably ate well and exercised mm. and didn't have any vices? Because I drink lots of water. Yeah, that's what purchase. the celebrities say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, maybe it's because you drank lots of water. Maybe it's because you injected thousands and thousands of pounds worth of <laughs> product into your face. Um, yes, but then you can. But also, the problem is you can see on an individual level why women would want to do those things, particularly if they're in the public eye. Because it is true that if you are, say, an actress, um, if you don't have work done, it will probably reduce your the period in which you can work, and particularly the period in which you can play romantic leads or whatever, or you end up playing the um, old crone characters very quickly. Yeah, and you can't inve- expect individual women to kind of fall on their swords yeah, yeah, for a principle that yeah. isn't of their making. And anyways, they you they would be replaced anyways by other women who did make those decisions. Yeah, so I think I therefore don't really know what solutions there might be because you can't really expect women to to take the individual hit, particularly if their um, livelihoods are dependent on it, and it, you you end up with this coordination problem where if everyone is doing it or enough people are doing it. Um, it becomes normal and then you have to do it. I, I I, mean, when it comes to sort of dangerous interventions, like something like a Brazilian butt lift is supposedly the most dangerous um, cosmetic procedure you can have. It has a really, really high death rate, which is partly because um, women fly to other parts of the world to have it done and then they have um, dodgy doctors and so on. It's really grim. You could probably ban Brazilian butt lifts. I think there's probably a strong case for the state intervening on that front. Um, I don't think the state ever would ban Botox and maybe also it shouldn't because it's, it's not, it's not dangerous. It just has this, over time, it has very corrosive effect on society and on women's self-esteem. But is that the business of legislators? I think probably not. What do you think is a, is there an answer to any of this? Is there any kind of solution or is it just, unfortunately what modernity is offering us i mean i think partly it's the way in which we've allowed ideas of of what a woman is to be very much um associated with youth and with femininity rather than being more open to more um you're just for accepting what women look like at all stages of their lives and i think part of this is tied to this preference to associate women with gender identity or social constructions of femininity rather than just femaleness, which isn't very feminine at all. You know, having a female body throughout the entire course of your life, all sorts of things happen to it and growing hair and in different places, getting wrinkles and, you know, getting saggy. All of that is completely normal. But um, it's been the idea of associating womanhood with femininity has somehow got assumed into this idea that it's associated with freedom and choice. And um, if you wanted to stop people having Botox, it would be considered infringements of people's free choice and their freedom of expression and their freedom of expressing themselves as truly feminine or how they feel inside. And I think we need to challenge this idea that how you look on the outside you know, that people can tell that's how you feel inside. Because I think that's actually become quite rigid in some ways, judging people for how they look, because we decided that if if people can choose how they look, we it's reasonable to do that. It's actually become quite common, I think. And I also, I think there's been this real toxic mutation of slogans such as um, my body, my choice. You know, originally that was very much associated with reproductive choice, but now it's kind of associated with sex work, with having cosmetic surgery, anything you want to do for your body, it's your free choice. And all the complexity of that and the compromise of that and the fact that you can do things that can do you harm 
has kind of gone out of the discussion. And I do think we, we need to keep pushing away and, you know, pushing away and saying that actually some decisions, that are things that you do to your body are questionable decisions and could cause long-term harm, but also they, that they do have an impact on how the rest of us are seen and how women in general are seen and how people are perceived. But I mean, it is a really tricky one because, um, yeah, I, and, and there is the fact that you always come up against a line where, you know, if you say about anything, oh, you shouldn't have that done, you'll get, oh, but you, you wear lipstick, you have hair dye, you shave, you know, and, and there's always these steps and where would you draw the line? Yeah, it is a tricky spectrum. So I've, I've, uh, I've not had Botox, but I do use retinol and have been doing that for ages, you know, which is also an anti-aging thing, just not quite as radical. Um, yes. I mean, if we're not, okay. So if we're not, willing to ban Botox, maybe we are. Should we be stigmatizing it? Is that is that a lever that we could potentially push to try and um hold back this kind of I mean I think I would prefer to if we were able to just have more conversations about what women look like in all their variety, including older women and and just having older women more vis visible, looking the way older, lo looking the way most older women do, which isn't what we see on television and isn't what's presented as an ideal. And even when you have images of like fashion shoots that are supposedly representing older women that, you know, they're not what most older women look like. And I think I'd rather focus on us increasing that diversity than stigmatizing the women who do have Botox or focusing on individual women, because I think that's always been a kind of trick that people have played against feminists when we've tried to question, you know, the sex industry. You're told, oh, you're just stigmatising sex workers, you know, or the beauty industry. Oh, you're just stigmatising women who have, you know, like actually we've just got some kind of vindictive urge towards women who are just following the rules and doing what they can within a system that isn't of their creation. And, you know, at the moment, I I feel really uncomfortable with the kind of discourse that's surrounding Madonna right now and all this all this mockery of how she looks and what she's had done when I, I, you know, I was a big fan of Madonna from about when Like a Virgin came out. And it's kind of she's been told she's too old her entire life almost, you know, since she hit about 30. And then to kind of have this actually really mean discourse that's focused on her as an individual, I, I find it just really cruel because um, she can't win because either yeah. she gets old and gets mocked for that or she tries yeah. to delay the aging process and then gets mocked for that so either yeah way. or there are certain women who you know just happen to have a really great bone structure who have managed to age and not have treatments and then you get all this kind of oh aren't they amazing can't you look like that and it's like well no because virtuous? most women don't look like yes. that it's just yeah and it's usually women who happen to be really thin and have been pretty all their lives. And it's just like, that's not a norm either. It's just, I also don't really you know, believe it, that it's completely natural in some of it. Yeah. yeah. So much of the natural, the natural look is just not really that natural. Yes. It's so funny if you look at, um, like, do you remember the actress in The Lady Killers, the original film of The Lady Killers? Um, no, I've not seen Oh, that. I watched it recently. It's such a great film. Um, this is the um, Ealing comedies, so filmed in the fifties, um, and the it's it, it's about a, a, a group of gangsters kind of conning an old lady, um, but then she gets the last laugh and whatever. It's great, and the actress who plays the the old lady, um, she's the same age as Meryl Streep. I found out recently, yeah. and she's yeah. the actress was in her like early seventies, and um, is portrayed as being a little old lady, and she looks like an old lady. You know, and also she's dressed in Edwardian clothes because, you know, that's that's the time that she came of age. Um, whereas now you look at women who are exactly the same age and one, they look nothing like an actual old lady. And two, they don't get, they tend not to get cast. Well, they try very, very hard not to be playing that role, although sometimes they are consigned to yeah. by Hollywood. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that there are more ways of, of dressing and looking when as you get older. And I found it 
I think it was the Guardian yesterday had two pieces that I found really interesting that one was by a woman I think in her 30s saying like oh I really regret feeling that I couldn't wear certain things when I was younger because of fashion advice I think the example she used was wearing navy and black at the same time and it was like oh that, that wasted time worrying about that and then at the same time there's an article about women in, her fif- women in their 50s saying like um we want to wear what we want, but we don't want to get it wrong. And it's this kind of like, um, wear what you like, but don't get it wrong kind of. And it seemed to be imposed on older women. And um, yeah, I, it, it it does seem that older women are, are on the one hand being told, um, oh, you don't have to dress like your granny anymore. You can be really sort of flexible and there's, there's all these choices, but don't show your arms. Here's a selection of tops that don't involve showing you, you know, I can remember seeing lots of stuff about sleeves and how older women hate hate sleeveless clothes. And it's like, I'm fine with sleeveless clothes. You know, it's this kind of very subtle shaming that looks like it's um, just helping you along to to look like, to look acceptable, even though you're older. Mm. You have all these options, but some of the options are wrong. Yes. 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 Like you, you can be fashionable, but within reason. Yeah. Yeah because you don't want to look like mutton dressed as lamb yes um can we talk as well about um middle-aged women and their political opinions yes (laughs) um yes which is something that you um you write about really insightfully in the book the the ways in which women you know mum's letters are um you're allowed to talk about prams you're allowed to talk about school catchment areas but there is a there is a particular kind of fury directed at the women of mumsnet when they stray into politics yeah and i think um this fact even the idea that you can talk about prams and you can talk about um, organic baby food or whatever that's always been you know, it's been quite sneery the way people have talked about it, that, um, oh, it's just these bored middle-class mummies with nothing better to talk about, but, you know, let them have mum's net to, like, talk about their trivial issues. And and it is this kind of, even in that, there's this trivialisation of um, care work and the domestic sphere and this treatment of it as, as this world that... It's, it's not real life. Mm. It's not dealing with real problems. Inherently ridiculous. And then at the same, yeah. And at the same time, when they do stray into anything beyond that sphere, they need to stay in their lane. You know, what do they know? They're just, they're just mummies. And it's, you know, even though a lot of the women, you know, debating on places like Mumsnet, you know, they have a life outside the home and a lot of them have worked outside the home. A lot of them are very educated women. You know, and they, but there's this idea that like, how could they possibly have opinions on things like sex and gender? What do they know? They're just mums, you know, and it's, and it's this simultaneous, they've got to be really trivial, although we'll hate them for it. But when, when they're not being trivial, we'll hate them for that as well. Because, um, and it's the idea as well that when they're not having these opinions that are just limited to the sphere of childcare, that, they can't be their own opinions that somehow they're being led astray by the far right or they're being misled because they can't be intelligent enough to actually formulate their own political views. Mm. So for um, listeners who might not know, Mumsnet has been described, I think in Vice or something like that, as the um, ground zero for British transphobia. And um, was indeed, it, I mean, did have even before um, the trans debate really kicked off, did have a, a kind of political power in the sense that politicians cottoned on to the fact that there are a lot of swing voters on the internet. And they used to go on and have Q&As um, with, um, during general election campaigns, would go on Mumsnet and have Q&As. And um, this is where the, the the biscuit question comes from. So that the... the um, question always asked in mums and at Q&A's was what was your favourite biscuit which always kind of annoys me as well because it is it's it's sort of playing into that trivial mumsy thing whereas actually you know mums letters what was quite often funny was that politicians would go on ready to talk about things like childcare ready to talk about um all the kind of lady lady topics and then would get actually some quite tough questions on the economy and foreign affairs and stuff so which they weren't necessarily ready for um so so mums that already had some kind of political importance on that front and then when um the gender recognition act became a big source of controversy mums 
became so-called the ground zero for British transphobia. And you had a lot of not only discussion happening on Mumsnet, but also lots of organising, um, which actually ended up being really important. And Mumsnet is, at, at the time of writing, the Mumsnet has looked to have won, um, given that Keir Starmer is now starting to pivot on these issues and so on. So it turns out that actually all these um, all these swing voter mums have have a potential power, but it's one that meets with enormous resistance from some cohorts. Particularly, I I'd say that. So I actually think that that there are some very high profile um, lefty men who really have it in for the mum's letters, someone like Owen Jones, I'm thinking of, you know, yeah, um, who, who I think, I rarely use the word misogynist, but I think Owen Jones does have a misogynist streak to him. Um, but also probably actually another group who who get really het up about mum's net are actually younger women who don't yet have children and actually see, have a real kind of hatred and fear of of the women of Mumsnet. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I that I worry about a bit with my book, I don't want it to be like I want to talk about intergenerational tension because I think it's really important that we talk about that and how we see older women when we're younger and how younger women, older women see younger women. And I, but I, I worry: am I actually identifying a problem, or am I kind of exacerbating it by putting yeah, it out? So, so I don't want to like sort yes. of blame. Yes blame all younger women but I do think there is this um you know as I said in the book for me part of what I saw feminism as when I was younger was kind of it'll liberate me from ending up like the women of my mother's generation that Mm. I won't get stuck I won't get trapped in that way because you know I came from quite a traditional sort of middle class background you know not left wing at all and you know there was there was quite strong beliefs that when you had children you know, you didn't work, you were financially dependent. And um, and with that financial dependence came a kind of, a kind of knowing your place and not speaking out too much because, um, you know, a phrase I used to hear a lot was, um, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So you, and I, I, I don't want to end up like that. And, but, and I, I still think, um, you know, that financial dependency on men is a real issue that needs to be tackled a lot if we want to like, value mothers and enable the work they do but I think yeah I think that that really drove what I thought of as feminism when I was younger was not ending up like those older women and if I had children not allowing motherhood to change me like not allowing it to affect my politics or to affect the way I saw myself or to you know I'd just be I'd be me but plus children and of course that's not how it works Mm. and I think a lot of um the discourse on sex and gender on mum's net a lot of it's driven by the fact that these are women who've had children, they've had, they've realised the impact on their lives and on their bodies. And they've realised the way in which, um, you know, misogyny or sexism or sex discrimination isn't, you know, this series of snapshot events that like bad things happen to you because people are intermittently sexist at certain points. That actually it's a process. It's to do with how, um, the female body and the female life cycle and the female roles aren't properly accommodated in our vision of how a society should work you know a lot of these women have come to that realization after having children and it has changed their political perspective and it has changed their understanding of differences between men and women and you know and it's and it's made them realize that reproductive difference really matters politically who has children is a is a really significant matter and, you know, because but often we're taught, oh, you've got to hide it away. If you want to be valued in the workplace, you've got to do all these things to make it look like you're just you're just the same as a man, basically. But um, I think that's quite frightening if you're a younger woman. You know, it can look like these older women who are pointing this out are setting a trap for you. And you can almost feel like, be quiet about it. You know, don't mention that we're different because like, or maybe you lot can be different, but if we're quiet about it or, you know, nobody will notice and it won't be the same for us. And I think, I think there is that kind of cycle. Um, and part, I think, do you think part of it's driven by, by fear? I think there's a hope that you might have when you're younger that kind of denying how significant sex difference is, how significant reproductive differences and what it means for the politics of being male or female 
I think a lot of young women don't want to stress that because they think that that is going to um, hold them back. Yeah. Yeah. I went yeah. to, um, it was just over a year ago, I went to a, a woman's place event in Bristol and it was talking about um, motherhood and reproduction. That was a the theme of the um, series of talks. And outside there were protesters and there was one holding a banner that, and I can't remember the exact wording, but um, it was about turfs want something like forced womanhood it was it was prote she it was a young woman who felt that what we believed in was forcing being a woman onto people who didn't want it almost like it, it sex difference was our fault for pointing it out it existed and that it was politically significant mm. and i think there's some of that that's directed at mumsnet as well if only you could keep up the charade then this wouldn't happen to me too sort of yes yeah yes yes i mean um I decided to call this podcast Made in Mother Matriarch because I think that one of the features of our contemporary experience of womanhood is that there's so little status attached to being a mother or a matriarch that the incentives are all towards trying to cling on to the maiden role as long as you possibly can, um, which means obviously being sexually attractive, but also I think means being sort of free and unencumbered by children because children do enormously limit your freedom for all of the joys that they bring yeah they do yeah um and they permanently change your life in all sorts of ways and um I mean yes understandably lots of young women look at that prospect and think no thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and structure politics according to that to that fear of um becoming the mother and the matriarch and I suppose what I wonder is I, I think that what we should be doing and I think what feminism should be orientated towards is is actually bestowing more status on the mothers and the matriarchs um, which by the way are most women right yeah. um, and we will actually spend most of our lives I mean I slightly controversially I am um, I'm 31 but I kind of consider myself to be middle-aged because I'm a mother and also because I actually think that if we live until 90, you know, optimistically, the first third of your life is zero to 30. The middle third is 30 to 60. And the last third is 60 to 90, right? I'm in the middle third of my life. I said this to a friend recently and she was like, you are, you are declaring war on, on the yuppies of Peckham by <laughs> saying that 31 is middle age. But uh, like, I honestly think that's true. And I think that going around describing myself as a young woman would be kidding myself because I'm a mother. I'm in that, I'm, I'm in that next space. Um, but there is a, yes there is an understandable desperation to cling on to the more high status role how do we restore can we how do we restore status to to the bulk of women who are um older and saggier but also actually wiser i think um it's, it is really difficult because there has been i think sometimes the degree to which Feminism has concerned itself with motherhood and the status of mothers is downplayed or forgotten because more attractive, well, to, to certain groups, to men in particular, more attractive images of feminism have risen to the surface and got mainstream publicity more. So it's so the kind of things that Adrian Rich was writing about in the 70s and kind of, and Bell Hooks was writing about those kind of thing about how important the mother role is and how it can actually be a a refuge from kind of the impressive aspects of capitalism and patriarchy. Those kind of things have, have been downplayed because the idea of like sexual liberation, women becoming more sexually available and women being in the workplace were the kind of things that were pushed. And that was the kind of thing I thought that feminism was almost all about in the, you know, as a young woman in the 90s, I think I had this idea of fem that feminists their beliefs had been to um, liberate women from the home, that it was all about the kind of stuff Betty Friedan was writing about and that there weren't more complicated views on that, on actually um, respecting mother's roles and actually understanding how important human dependency is. Because I think that's flight from this idea that we're all dependent on each other is just such a huge problem across the political spectrum. And I think it really harms mothers in particular because that 
there is almost this stigma about admitting that you are all that we're all enmeshed with one another and um and then you have um people like um Sophie Lewis and um Paul Surrogacy now wanting to like completely sever all these essential bonds that people have with one another because they're seen as somehow repressive and limiting but uh, I think it is really difficult because we have to like we have to make it clear that a more equal society and a more respectful society does involve not having total freedom that it involves having other people who are reliant on you and it involves your identity who you are being conditional on your relationships with other people you know you don't just become a woman who happens to have children when you are a mother there is something different about that and it's affected it affects how you interact with everyone and i think that is really hard it's a really hard sell when the idea of um being free and being liberated so you know so much is in you know this whole idea of getting to be your true self which has become such a kind of slogan that drives a lot of people's idea of what feminism and other social justice movements should be about they don't really allow for the fact that you're in you're within all these networks in which what other people are to you define who you are and i think we have to teach children that and it's quite and it's quite difficult i do think in feminism right now i think it's quite interesting because i would say about 10 years ago i think you know there were always these kind of middle level discussions about how um you know it's quite bad that childcare is so expensive and isn't rape culture terrible and all these things but there hadn't been this real push towards denying the significance of biological sex that has really risen up really i mean it's it been bubbling away but it's really risen up in the past 10 years and i think that is in some ways pushed feminists in two directions towards those who are desperately trying to find ways not to uh, not to recognize the salience of biological sex and other women who are who you know it's like hitters in the face you know you can't we can't talk around it anymore and i found that quite disturbing in some ways because i think i was someone who always didn't want to really admit just how significant reproduction is or how significant male strength is you know all these things that are related to the body are related to dependency but now i think we have to talk about them because there's no we're not being allowed out of that conversation i think i think there's there's potential in there that that could move towards a politics that benefits mothers because it because we we just can't have these kind of surface level conversations about oh well you know if we had cheaper childcare that'd solve the issue or if we delegated work between mothers and fathers better that'd solve it because that's not enough that's not enough to elevate our status and it's not enough to really talk about all the differences that matter when you become a mother Sorry that was very long. No. I was about, I I was going to say that um in a weird kind of way the trans issue has has um rejuvenated feminism and then I realized I was saying rejuvenated as if that were you know making feminism young or the ideal. Um I think it probably has revivified feminism in the sense that it's forced us to think and to talk about some of these issues to do with biological sex which maybe had been a little bit forgotten a little bit marginalized. And yes I think as you say there's probably been a bit of a bifurcation in that there are now um there's a kind of extreme sex denialism which is riding high in universities and so on but at the same time you also have a much stronger um stronger gender critical movement which also is i think actually really exciting and good and and your book is uh, is one of you know you don't talk at length about transgenderism in your book but it is it is sort of there throughout the fact that biological sex is real is real and important and the sort of war on turfs as a as a feature of hatred of middle-aged women and so on and i think that you might not have been able to publish that 10 years ago or even 5 years ago because actually i think that there's been a um a sudden and fantastic wave of new books by um 
gender critical women, you know, Helen Joyce, who's obviously been on the show, um, Kathleen Stark, and now your book. There's a bit of a canon emerging. I think kind of just over 10 years ago, I was still... I, you know, I'd, I'd had my blog for a little bit and I'd written, so I wrote something for the F word where I, I tried to write about abortion in completely gender neutral terms. And I think I tried to do that for the New Statesman once as well. But there was always this bit of me thinking, what am I doing? You know, this doesn't make sense. You know, I've, I've taken these arguments and I've stripped all the politics out of them. And I think, um, more and more women who have tried to be good girls on this debate and tried to kind of, hold these two competing things in mind, you know, are realising it just doesn't hold. You know, we, we need to talk about the body because the body matters and we, we can't avoid it. And and yeah, I think it's um I think it is a really interesting time for feminism because I think it's maybe the first time sort of in my life that I've been really aware of feminism that engages with not just this idea of what do we do to be absolutely free, but engages with the limitations of our body. And I think it's, I actually find that really refreshing because it makes me aware that some of the feminism and the feminist ideas I dealt with when I was younger, they were, there was an underlying fear to it, this kind of, um, we mustn't push this argument too far, otherwise we'll get to somewhere that's really inconvenient. But then, you know, it's this fear of talking about the female body, I think it's it's linked to this fear that if we talk about it too much, we'll be exposed as inferior. And we're not inferior, we're just different. And we need to talk about which differences matter. Yeah, yeah, that is a strong idea lurking within a lot of the sex denialism. Um, and indeed, I would say um, the sort of some of the blank slate ideas as well about men and women, the insistence that psychologically we are absolutely identical. There seems to be a fear of if we were to admit that men and women are different in some ways, that would be to admit that women are worse. That seems yeah. to be the very strong implicit idea within that. And yeah, and I do find that very hard because certainly, I mean, I I grew up around quite rigid ideas about men and women being very different and this kind of like or when you have children victoria you'll understand this and kind of and you'll know that your role is this and like your partner's role is this and i wouldn't say that has happened to me in the sense that like um you know it's almost like um you know when i went to university i remember being dropped off and my dad telling me like i don't know why there are so many women here because they'll often have babies and me thinking oh, but and then thinking oh but I'm different you know and it's that kind of like you know that the fear that if you admit that there are differences you know what are people going to start saying like you're not allowed an education what's the point of that or you're not as rational you can't do science you can't do this I think that is a risk and I don't think we should downplay the degree to which um any admission of difference is used as a a doorway into actually telling women not explicitly that they're inferior, but telling them that they're not as rational, that they can't do certain things, that they're perfectly capable of doing, and they they can't think that certain things. And I think we need to be quite wary of that. But it, it, it has made it so that, on the other hand, you end up with women completely lying about there being any difference. And then it just looks like, um, oh, well, if women can only be... Only have equality by forcing everyone to pretend that there's no difference between men and women. It's not really equality. It's, it's this really fine balance. And because I, you know, I, I do really kind of resent that a lot of the books that I remember, like when I was younger, these kind of, um, why women can't read maps and men can't iron and those kind of, they were really fashionable. Sort of, I remember when I was in my late teens and early twenties and all these men would write them and they'd say things like, Oh, I know it's very dangerous to say this nowadays. And it's just like, it's not because it's just standard sexism. Of course men can iron and of course women can read maps. And I think we need to be very wary of just how recent that kind of thinking is and not to go down that route. But we need to find a space where we can talk about what is different and and part of that is also to talk about emotions particularly i think you wrote very well in um in the case against the sexual revolution this idea you know to do with sex and emotions that women are very frightened to talk about the idea that 
you know, the way you feel after sex could like be emotionally driven and you know and the way you feel after having children what are your emotions are they different from male emotions and we've been really scared off talking about that in a way that is really really worrying and really harmful to women because you, you think you're being strong by pretending you don't feel the way you feel but so there's currently a lot of discussion in Westminster about um the issue of childcare and what the government has recently promised um although this is probably actually going to have to be paid for by the next Labour government, so it remains to be seen, you know, what actually happens, is is essentially universal state-funded daycare for um, children age, I think, nine months and upwards, whereas at the moment you only get um, some free hours for two- and three-year-olds. And um, a lot of the discussion has been around um, getting women back into the workplace and boosting the economy and this being a sort of pro-growth agenda to offer more childcare. And I mean, I do think it's horrendous that childcare is so enormously expensive and becoming a parent is probably the worst financial decision you can possibly make because all of a sudden you're spending more on childcare than you are on your mortgage. And you can also borrow less for your mortgage. And and basically it's a complete financial disaster for most families, which is just very obviously anti-family in my view. But then I'm also very... Um, uneasy about this discussion of of mothers as basically economic widgets who we can be sending out to boost the economy and basically who cares about what they're doing. The the idea that what you do at home as a stay-at-home mum is basically a waste of your time. And that it has no economic value. Yeah. it's And feminists have been saying for years this this has... This this is part of the economy. The unpaid work women do mm. contributes, and it's just and I, I do find some of the, the discourse is just like women are slackers if they're at home with their their children, and it, it's it's so ignorant. Mm. And what and but also one of the tricky things is that um, I think the best political strategy here is to is to genuinely offer families more choice i'm not normally mrs choice with a capital c but i do think that actually in this instance certain arrangements are going to be better suited to some families than others and i really do think that families are the best that's that's the the sort of the level at which people should be making decisions it shouldn't be imposed by government um so some so some families stay at home dad is the right policy some is a stay at home mom some is full-time daycare whatever um but also, it is true that if we left people to their own devices and they genuinely had choice, and we know this from lots of polling, a lot more women would choose to stay home than would men, which would probably increase the gender pay gap and would look an awful lot like going backwards, you know, so-called in the kind of progress thing. And some feminists... But as you say, by no means all, because this is a long-standing controversy. But some feminists would say that um, there isn't a difference really between mothers and fathers, and that actually, if we didn't have all these hang-ups about traditional gender roles, then we would have um, women and men behaving in identical ways at home and in the workplace. And I just, I one, I think that's probably not true. And two, I think that when we try really, really hard to pretend that that's true and to pretend that that mothers and fathers are exactly the same, I think we see women losing out because I think the result is that we see, you know, reluctant mothers leaving leaving the daycare centre in tears, having dropped off their children when they really didn't want to. And I just think that I'm just really not convinced that this war on war on gender differences is to women's benefit. I think there are actually lots of sly ways in which it can end up being the opposite. Yeah, I think it's really difficult to know what you would really want when there are all these different messages associated with it and associated about um, what it means about what you're capable of as a woman and what your value is as a woman if you make one decision as opposed to another. I, I can remember kind of growing up in the 80s, there was such a powerful kind of, you know, the kind of mommy war stuff that Susan Faludi writes about in Backlash that kind of um, either you're this um, traditional 
stay-at-home mother who has all these like right-wing values and is a bit um, freakish or you're this evil career woman who like never sees her children and you've got massive shoulder pads and you you kind of you know and it's kind of this these two extremes are kind of posed to women and it was like you must pick one and I remember feeling like oh, I'm, I'm not going to be the stay-at-home traditional mummy you know that's not going to be me and it wasn't really it was a, a thought I had that wasn't really associated with how I thought I'd relate to my own children. It was very much associated with um, the the kind of status I wanted as a woman and the fact that I wanted to be recognised as an independent person and as someone who had intellectual worth as well as kind of a capacity to care for others. And I think when all that gets confused together, it's very hard to know um, what would be an independent choice when it's all so loaded and particularly as we're, as we're talking about with mum's net when you can see what low status women have who become mothers and you know what lo- the low status they have as political but as people who contribute to discourse because if you're staying at home looking after a baby what have you got to say about what the world is why should your opinion matter if your if your status is that low how can you know that women who reject that would reject it if it wasn't the case if there was actually proper status accorded to it i think financially it's very difficult to um to manage because as you say that would increase the pay gap and the longer women stay at home as well the worse the impact on their pensions and it kind of creates this kind of accumulating inequality across a life cycle and when you really need to find ways of engaging with that that go beyond saying oh it's just individual choice and that's really complicated but yeah I think it is so hard to know what a free choice would be so with my third child I went back to work after seven months because um, I split leave with my partner and I did regret it a bit you know I was breastfeeding and commuting and um, you know pumping milk several times a day in an office and then driving home for an hour and a half with it kind of cold back and I didn't like doing that but and I felt a bit ashamed for the fact that I didn't like it it was like you know there was this kind of isn't this what you wanted kind of message and and I now I just think you know I should have just been able to admit this isn't ideal and it's not exactly you know I didn't choose the whole system that creates these scenarios but it's not ideal when women are doing that I always think that having milk pumping rooms in offices is, um, I didn't quite appreciate this until I breastfed myself, but if you're still needing to pump milk in the middle of the day, it's because your baby is still quite young. And I think actually a properly sort of pro-woman, pro-child, pro-family policy wouldn't need milk rooms in offices because it's because you'd still financially and socially be able to be at home at that point, right? Like if you actually yeah. had 12 months maternity leave, you wouldn't need milk pumping, pumping rooms. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's quite grim to kind of like yeah. leave meetings and go off and pump somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It does make you feel like a like a cow as well. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, then that's, but then that would necessitate sort of, leaning into the ways in which women are profoundly different from men and that's uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons it kind of made me aware as well that breastfeeding isn't just you know it's not just the substance you know the the fact you know and in the end I I gave up after a while because I just thought oh he can just have formula because the whole experience of breastfeeding it wasn't just that because it came from my body I thought it was loads better than anything we could buy from you know it's the whole cuddling up and being it's and touch and smell and all these different aspects of it that aren't the value of that and the specificity of it isn't fully recognized if we're just like, oh you can just pump milk it's it's not the same no it's not um to try and end on a note of optimism do you think that sort of post-turf wars, I think we are approaching post-turf wars, at least in the UK, not necessarily in America, we'll see what happens there. Um, do you think that there might be more space to talk about these, um, you know, the physical realities of motherhood and so on in the mainstream? Actually, I really do. I think that um, 
through Mums Net and, and through groups like A Woman's Place that people have been talking, well, feminists have been talking about it a lot more than than I, you know, I remember them doing sort of a few years back. And I think I see younger women who are engaged with these groups, you know, are being very aware of what it means to be female and what female difference means. You know, we've been forced in this into this corner where we have to start saying, no, these things are different and these things matter. But I actually think it's really, it's a really fruitful place for which to, to develop new ideas or maybe even also pick up on ones that got discarded because people decided, oh, that's really essentialist. Oh, we, we want to just reject. I think, you know, I think that's, there's, there's real potential there to talk about it. Mm. Yes, as you as you mentioned earlier, there have been whatever you want to call it, maternal feminism, difference feminism, care feminism, whatever, is a is a long standing thread within the second wave and long before. It just tends to have been forgotten. But maybe we maybe we should all be picking up these old books. I, th- I think we've yeah. been sort of not allowed to ignore the body anymore. You know, we've been forced to take account of it. But I think. For the long term, that could be really good for women. Hmm. <laughs> All right. On that high note, Victoria, can you tell viewers and listeners where they can find more of your work? Um, so my book is Hags, the Demonization of Middle-Aged Women, and it's out now in sort of all bookshops <laughs> all good bookshops yeah all good bookshops <laughs> I thought, should I say good bookshops or not <laughs> and I, I they're just, not good if they don't have your book yeah <laughs> yeah and um yeah and I write regularly for the critic as well so once a week fantastic thank you so much so I'm gonna um wrap up here for our free subscribers and for paid Substack subscribers um you can uh, hang around for another 20, 30 minutes-ish and um, where I'll continue the conversation with Victoria. Um, For everyone else, thank you so much.